Um, listen, if you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, please join me in John chapter 12. We're going to be continuing in our series in the gospel according to John. Uh, we started chapter 12 a couple of weeks ago, and hopefully by God's grace we'll be able to finish chapter 12 next week. Uh, but this morning we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 36. John 12, 20 through 36. I'm going to read this text, and then I'm going to pray and ask God to bless our time, uh, to bless us through the preaching of his word this morning. Uh, I'll be reading from the ESV. Um, if you don't have a Bible, man, we'd love for you to have one. Actually, that'd be a great gift for us to give to you. So if you look on this table back here to my left, which would be your right, where Miss Rays is standing with little Sullivan, uh, there are a couple Bibles on that table. If you don't have one, take one with you. Um, that's our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy, physical copy of God's Word. So let me read this for us. John chapter 12, starting at verse 20. <clears throat> now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also." If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there, they heard it and it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, or excuse me, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are great and mighty. God, you are the creator of all things the giver and sustainer of life, all that we have and all that we are has been provided to us by your hand. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open and divide your word. Father, I have an incredible task before me, and I am just a sinful, fallible man who's limited in his understanding, who's limited in my abilities. So, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest upon me right now 
God, that your spirit would work in and through me to bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ, to rightly divide your word, to open it, explain it, and apply it to your people. And Father, I pray that through this time that we would be exhorted, we would be challenged, we would be encouraged, but most of all, that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted high during this time. Lord, use me for your glory and for our good. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week as we were in John chapter 12, we had the opportunity to study the triumphal entry, the entrance of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. And what we found as we looked at that text is that Jesus, his entrance, even the location, even the way that he enters into Jerusalem was to fulfill specific messianic prophecies. And what we found is that Jesus in this triumphal entry is really revealing himself to the nation of Israel as this long-awaited and promised Messiah. But see, this entrance, this triumphal entry really serves two purposes here because not only does it reveal Christ as the Son of God and the Messiah, but this also raises the opposition, right? This is going to serve in advancing Jesus Christ to the cross as all part of God's plan to redeem his people. You see, much to the disapproval of the Pharisees, the notoriety and the popularity of Jesus Christ is continuing to grow. See, at this time, Jesus is continuing to gain more and more followers. And as the popularity of Jesus increases, see, the popularity and the esteem of the Pharisees begin to decrease more and more. And so this is a problem for these brothers. So they've settled in their mind that they must eliminate Jesus Christ. So they forge a plan to murder the Son of God. But nevertheless, at this moment, here what we have in John chapter 12, at this section, Jesus is a very popular individual. In fact, he's so popular, what we'll see as we look at this text is now even Gentiles are coming and seeking him out. And so what we'll find is there's this group of Greeks, and they've come up to worship, and they want to see Jesus, and then Jesus has a response for them. And what we'll find is a fundamental reality. What we're going to find is an essential or a crucial truth to the followers of Jesus Christ, something that is vitally important for us each to understand. You see, what Jesus says is something that as a disciple, as a follower, we must recognize before we commit to him. See, brothers and sisters, I hope that this next statement that I'm about to make doesn't shock any of you in here this morning, but following Jesus is costly. It's difficult. See, following Jesus requires great sacrifice. In fact, it requires the highest form of sacrifice, daily dying to yourself, surrendering your very life to Jesus. Nothing short of that will do. See, Jesus is going to show us something here in this passage. He's going to show us the glory of loss. He's going to show us the beauty of dying. And ultimately, we're going to see this principle applied to the death of Jesus Christ, which will redeem a people for himself. But what we also will learn from Jesus by looking at this text is that if you should choose to follow Jesus, you too must die and give your life away. But see, here's the glorious reality for 
those of us who are in Christ, when we die, when we give our lives away, it's when we truly begin to live. That is when we actually find life. It's only by dying that we live. What a wonderful paradox this is for the believer. You see, this passage is both challenging yet encouraging at the same time. See, Christ's words are meant to exhort us. They're meant to challenge us. It's really meant to challenge those who come inquiring about him. The Lord Jesus wants anyone who should choose to follow him to be fully aware of what that means. He wants everyone to be fully aware of his own mission that he's committed to, but he doesn't want anybody to be confused about what it means to follow him. Listen, I don't want anybody to leave here this morning confused about what it means to commit yourself to following Jesus Christ. I want that to be clear. And the word of God wants us to be clear on that understanding as well. So as we look at this text that's before us this morning, I have five simple observations that I want to make. Five simple points that I want to make as we walk through this text together. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give them to you quickly, and I'm going to do my best to make sure that my transitions are clear so we know when we're moving from one point to the next so you can follow along. But here they are. I'll give them to you quickly. Point number one is we're going to see a desire for Jesus. Number one is a desire for Jesus. Number two, the necessity of death. Number two is the necessity of death. Number three, we'll see the commitment of Jesus. Commitment of Jesus. And number four, we'll see the victory of Jesus. The victory of Jesus. And number five, we will see a final plea. A final plea. So my hope this morning, again, is to encourage but also challenge everybody in this room. I want you to consider whether you truly understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Do you see the significance, the eternal profit to be gathered in giving your own life away and imitating your Savior? So that's my goal for the morning, hopefully, is that you would see the majesty of Christ and his saving grace and laying down his own life for his people. Then not only would you be compelled to commit yourself deeply and fully to him, but you would see his glory and grace. And that would transform us all together. So let's walk through this passage together. All right, point number one, we see a desire for Jesus. You see, as I mentioned a few moments ago, this section of John's gospel, it comes right on the heel of Jesus's triumphal entry. So the setting is the same. It's the city of Jerusalem. And as Pastor Tyler mentioned last week, they're at the feast of the Passover. And there's a million people there, at least. We can kind of speculate or estimate that number, but there is a ton of people gathered for this feast. And what we find out from looking at the text is there's some Greeks who come. Now, when the text uses the word Greeks, that's probably some Gentile proselytes, right? So these are people who were Gentiles, so they weren't Jewish in their ancestry, but they had converted over to Judaism, which is why they wanted to observe the tradition of coming to the Passover feast. So the text tells us that this group comes and they want to see Jesus. 
In fact, verse 21 says that they, we wish to see Jesus. And verse 21 tells us that they go to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. Now, why they go to Philip of all the disciples, I'm not really sure. The text doesn't tell us. But it says that they go to Philip and they, we wish to see Jesus. Now, in the Greek, the word that is used there, wish, uh, would insinuate that they want to meet with Jesus and interview him. So they want to sit down with Jesus and spend a significant amount of time with him and ask him some questions. They want to see Jesus. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether their desire to meet with him is inspired by their belief that he's actually the Savior and the Messiah. That we don't know, so I don't want to speculate on their motive. But all I can work with is what we have here, so I believe they wanted to see Jesus for one reason or another. Can't say exactly what it was, but what I can say is that there was this incredible attraction of Jesus Christ. That people wanted to spend time with him. That people wanted to see him. That these large crowds of people began trampling each other just to get to Jesus. See, it healed the crippled man. If you recall, if we have this progression in John and these uh, miracles that Jesus performs get more and more incredible. So he heals the crippled man. Then he gives sight to the blind man. And now, by the way, he's raised someone from the dead. So you can imagine the frenzy that surrounds the Lord Jesus. How these people just want to get to him. Jesus had this incredible magnetism. You add to that his incredible teaching. See, the text says he taught with one with real authority, not like the Pharisees and scribes. So all these people are drawn to Jesus. They want to get to him. So here in John 12, it says that these Greeks come and they say, we wish to see Jesus. Now, let's stop here for a minute, as I believe we can make a simple point of application here, something that I hope will challenge everybody in this room today. You see, these Greeks wanted to see Jesus. The question I have for you this morning is, do you want to see Jesus? Is that you? Is that your posture, for example, when you come into this space on Sunday mornings? Do you have a desire to worship together collectively with your brothers and sisters and sing praise to your king, to meet with Christ Jesus? Not just on Sunday mornings, but as you sit in your time and you read God's word, is there a desire for you to see the Lord Jesus in his saving glory and give him all the praise that he's due? Is that a desire that you also have? Here's an opportunity we can say, what are our motivations for pursuing Christ? Again, I don't know what the motivation was for this group of Greeks, but what's your motivation in pursuing Jesus Christ? See, do you have this list of demands for the Lord Jesus? Are you pursuing Christ because you think he's going to fix every issue in your life? That he'll resolve every problem that I have? If I just pursue Jesus, he'll make everything right. What is your desire? Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are part of the local church and they're faithful in their attendance every Sunday, but they come in here with the wrong expectations. It's not to see Jesus in his glory according to the preaching of his word and the fellowship of the saints, but they come in with some, they want to see something grandiose, right? They want to see what they call a move of the spirit. They want to see Jesus perform or do something for them. 
Again, here's an opportunity to examine our own hearts, to take an inventory of our own lives. Now, listen, I don't, don't get me wrong. When we pray as elders, when we prepare to meet on Sundays, yes, we want to see the Spirit at work in here. We're not here to try to manufacture, generate some sort of atmosphere. We don't come here hoping to see people fall in or slain in the spirit or see some kind of something that we would attribute to the work of the spirit other than people repenting and believing in Christ Jesus. That's what we want. Unfortunately, a lot of people have the improper motivations when they come into this place. If you only want to see Jesus for what you think he can do for you. And I don't mean salvation and eternal life. I mean, you only want some sort of provision from him. And the Bible says that's not genuine belief. In fact, Jesus rebukes that type of belief. If you go to John chapter 6, and after the feeding of the 5,000, and then the next day it says all of these people begin to follow Jesus. And it's only because they'd had their bellies filled and they wanted him to perform another miracle. Jesus continued to feed us. They didn't want the bread of life. They didn't want the son of God. They just wanted what Jesus could do for them. They wanted the physical provisions. That's why they wanted to see Jesus. That's why they pursued him the next day. And Jesus rebukes that type of pursuit. That is not genuine belief. So again, here's an opportunity to take inventory of our own lives, to examine our own motivations. If you say, yes, I do want to see Jesus Christ, naturally the next question would be, well, why? Ask yourself why. Why do you wish to see Jesus? So point number one, we see this desire for Christ. Point number two, and we'll spend probably most of our time right here. Point number two, we see the necessity of death. So these Greeks are, they're hoping to see Jesus, and so they go to Philip, and then Philip goes to Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip, they both go to Jesus. And they say, hey, there's this group of Greeks, and they want to see you. And then Jesus responds here in verse 23, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we've heard Jesus use this terminology before, the hour. When Jesus talks about the hour, he talks about his hour. We've heard him say that on several, time, uh, several occasions, if you recall back in John chapter 2, where Jesus is at the wedding in Cana, where he turns water into wine. His mother comes to him and says, hey, we're out of wine. He says, my hour has not yet come. Right? Or if you go to John chapter 7, when his brothers want him to go up to the feast, and he says, my hour is not now. Or if you go later in John chapter 7, it says that Jesus, uh, they wanted to arrest Jesus, but he was able to evade them because his hour had not yet come. You see, that phrase, the hour, is referring to the time of Jesus' death and crucifixion and ultimately his glorification on the cross. You see, up until this point, Jesus' hour had not come. But now Jesus says the hour has finally arrived. Now, initially, this seems like a very odd response that Jesus offers Philip and Andrew. See, they come to him and say, hey, Jesus, there's this group of Greeks that want to see you. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, send them on. He doesn't say, all right, let's go. I'll go talk to them. I'd be more than happy to engage in a conversation with them. It's not what Jesus says. He says, the hour is finally come. See, Jesus responds this way for a reason. 
It's because the Lord Jesus has a laser focus. He is completely fixed on marching to Calvary to lay down his life. You see, Jesus has a one-track mind. He is consumed with glorifying God the Father and fulfilling his will and his plan of redemption. He knows the reason that he came, and he won't be turned aside from that. See, Jesus is like the soldier that Paul writes about in 2 Timothy 2, where he says a soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs. Right? He has one goal, and that's to please his commanding officer. So Jesus is not going to be entangled in other affairs. Yes, these Greeks want to see him, and they may even have a wonderful motivation. They may even have great desire to see Jesus for a good reason. But Jesus says, no, the hour has come. I know why I'm here, and I won't be deterred. So what is Jesus' purpose? What is this hour that has arrived. See, if we look at verse 24, it gives us some insight into what Jesus is actually referring to. Let's look at verse 24. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, we've talked about this before, but anytime you see the phrase, truly, truly, what follows is vitally important. It's essential. It's something that we must give our attention to. And so Jesus proceeds to tell his disciples exactly what he came to do. And he does so by using an analogy that they would have easily understood, right? The analogy of a grain of wheat. Now, why they would have understood this is because if you understand the Jewish culture, uh, to their economy, agriculture was very important, right? Agriculture, farming, that was how they made their living. That was part of their livelihood. In fact, this is just a universal principle, understanding that you must bury a seed, it dies, and then it grows and produces fruit. So this is something they would have easily understood. And so Jesus, what he's doing here is he's making an analogy for his own death and the way that it will lead to life for all of those that are in Christ Jesus. See, the same way that that grain of wheat must fall into the ground and die, in the same way, Jesus' death was absolutely necessary for any of us to have life. You see, the death of Jesus Christ produces the harvest of salvation for sinful men and women. Amen? Is anyone excited about that? Okay, I got one person with me. Praise God. All right. See, Jesus is reminding the disciples here of the reality of the cross. See, he told them on multiple occasions that he was going to Jerusalem and he would be betrayed and he would be crucified and killed, but they didn't quite understand it. And here he is again explaining to them that this is needed. This is absolutely necessary. Apart from the death and resurrection of Christ, brothers and sisters, there is no life. I don't care how good you have it here on this side of eternity. If you are not in Christ, you have no life, period. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus are absolutely mandatory as part of God's plan to redeem humanity. So, brothers and sisters, do you, do you realize that this morning? And without the sacrifice of Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. 
See, had Jesus not gone to the cross and willingly surrendered his life, had he not shed his blood to atone for our transgressions, there's no hope for you and me this morning. There's no reason for us to be gathered here today. But oh, what a glorious Savior he is. See, as we look at the text here, Jesus is faced with the reality of this final hour. He sees the ugliness and the brutality of the cross that awaits him. But he's completely focused on and committed to the task at hand. See, he understands that his death is necessary to give life to his people. Oh, he is a worthy and glorious savior. See, we'll talk about this more in just a minute, but We'll talk about this commitment of Christ and just how astounding this actually is. But for now, I want to highlight something else that Jesus says, and I want to apply this here for us. I think this is incredibly important. See here, Jesus is pointing to the principle of death, specifically his own death and how it's necessary to give life to others. But here in verses 25 and 26, he makes certain that the principle of death also applies to his followers. Let's look at verses 25 and 26. I'm going to spend a few minutes here. Jesus says this, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So once again, Jesus doesn't want there to be any confusion He doesn't want you to be confused about what he came to do, but he also doesn't want anyone to be confused about what you must do if you decide to follow him. You see, just as Jesus has died, and he calls us to die a particular death as well. He says, you must die first to self. You see, you cannot simultaneously serve Jesus Christ and serve yourself and the world and the flesh. You cannot do both. See, Jesus says you must die to the world and the things of it. But you see, this is the great challenge for many of us, isn't it? And we're so enamored with the things of this life. We're in love with these temporary pleasures. These possessions that are made of dust, they tend to steal our hearts away from the Lord Jesus. And why is that? I mean, none of them will last. None of it can save. You know, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 tells us this. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. So that tells us right there that What the world has to offer may seem great on the surface, but none of it will do. It's never enough. So that's why Jesus challenges us. He challenges the disciples here. And you must lose your life if you really want to find it. He understands that the world is a common temptation. That's why the word of God rebukes pursuing the things of the world over and over again. But we love the world. And even more so, I think we love ourselves, don't we? 
Which is why Jesus again says, lay down your life, lose your life. Because we love ourselves so much. You know, I hear people all the time saying, oh man, you just need to learn to love yourself more. That's terrible advice. I think we love ourselves too much. And that's often an obstacle to our pursuit of Jesus Christ, to following him wholeheartedly as we ought to. You see, Jesus warns against that ideology. He says, if you love your life, you will lose it. He says something similar in Matthew 10. He says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I want to be clear. Jesus isn't saying you can't enjoy life and you can't enjoy living. I don't want anybody walking out of here, you know, depressed, saying that they can't enjoy their family, they can't enjoy their job, you can't enjoy the blessings that God's given us. In fact, uh, the Bible clearly tells us that God made everything to be good and to be enjoyed by his blessing. This life is a good thing that God's given to us. See, what Jesus is saying here is that if you've tethered your hopes and your greatest affections to yourself or your accomplishments or your possessions or anything other than him, ultimately you will lose your life. If you're looking to your occupation to save you, if you're looking to your family, if you're looking to anything in this world, you will lose your life. See, on the other hand, Jesus says, if you hate your life in this world, you will keep it for eternal life. Notice what he says there, the qualifier here. He says, for eternal life. I don't know about you, but I believe eternity is better than 75 or 80 years. Amen? Especially eternity in the presence of your Savior. He says, if you hate your life in this world, you will keep it for eternal life. You see, if you really value eternity, if you truly want to live, you first must die. In fact, that's the highest form of living, giving your life away, and that is what is required of anyone who would come into the kingdom, anyone who would want to designate themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. You must die. It says you must hate your life. That's a strong expression. That's strong language that Jesus uses there. Now, the expression of hating one's life would have been common amongst the Jewish people. And what this means is it brings with it the idea of giving precedence to one thing over another. I love that. Giving precedence to one thing over another. So it's really making a decision of assigning priority, deciding to commit myself to something over here while forsaking everything else over here. And guess what? That something that you commit yourself to is the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. And what a glorious reality it brings to be in his favor, to be under his grace and his care. So when Jesus says, hate your life, that means we must place Jesus Christ above all others, above every commitment, above every person, every relationship, everything. Jesus is superior. That's hard to do. I think that we can just be transparent here. We can just be honest. That's difficult. Jesus says, hate your life must put him above every obligation. That even means obligation to your friends, 
obligation to family members, work, recreation. It means above the obligation or commitment you have to your political party. Uh-oh. It means above the obligation you have to your ethnicity. I'm really in trouble now. Right? Christ is king. Hate and despise the things of this world by comparison. See, that's really what Jesus is saying. He said by everything else, the way that you look at everything else in comparison to Christ almost seems like hatred because your love for him is so great. It's so superior. See, Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, that's the challenge for us right there, brothers and sisters. This call to hate and surrender our lives, to also march towards death, imitating our Savior, Jesus. See, here in verse 26, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. So if we want to follow Jesus, what must we do? Let's think about what he did first. See, Jesus marched to Jerusalem. He carried his cross, and he ascended that hill, and he died. He went to Calvary, and he died, willingly laying down his life. And he says, you must follow me if you want to be my disciple. That means we must die as well must lay down our lives for the sake of the king. But there's this beautiful promise in verse 26 that he gives us. He says, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. So I don't know about you, but I'd much rather be honored by God the father than the world any day. See, being honored by the father is much, much greater. It's the highest, most glorious form of honor. Jesus says, if anybody serves me, the Father will honor him. So we've seen this desire for Christ, number one. Number two, we see the necessity for death now. Number three, we're going to see here the commitment of Jesus. You see, knowing that his hour had come, Jesus expresses the agony of what lies ahead. So Jesus says, now is my soul Trouble. You see, the word trouble that is used here expresses feelings of horror, anxiety, agitation. Now, I want us to be clear on this, though. I don't want anybody to be confused here. See, Jesus isn't scared, okay? Jesus isn't backpedaling for fear of the cross. See, it isn't the pain of the crucifixion that is troubling Jesus. Instead, it's bearing the divine judgment of sin. It is the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son. That is what is troubling Jesus Christ. You see, as the second person of the Trinity, one who is with God and who is, who is God from the very beginning of time, Jesus had only been the object of the Father's love and good pleasure. But see, on the cross... Jesus is to absorb the wrath of God. We're told that he becomes a curse. See, God is perfectly pleased with his son. Don't get it confused. But as part of his, his redemptive plan, the Lord God crushes his own son, satisfying his righteous wrath and atoning for the sins of his people. 
See, Jesus is committed to that end. He's committed to the cross despite the horrors of the crucifixion. See, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame. This is the commitment of our Savior. He's bold. He makes a beeline for the cross, never being deterred. Boldly submitting unto death, but yet his soul was troubled by what awaits him. He was deeply disturbed, knowing that the sins of the world would be laid upon his shoulders and that the wrath of God would be laid upon him. Although Jesus despises what awaits him, he is perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. There is no conflict within the Godhead. See, Jesus says here, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So Jesus, though he is troubled, says, what should I do? Should I ask God to deliver me from this? No. I'm committed to the task hand. I know the reason for which I have come. Jesus says this is his purpose. This is the reason he left heaven in the side of the Father. This is the reason he was born of a virgin and took on flesh and had come to earth, as Mark 10, 45 tells us, to give his life as a ransom for many. So then the question now is, well, why? Does the text tell us why? Why this level of dedication? Why the overwhelming commitment to this end? And the simple answer is for the glory of God. See, that's the primary motivation of Christ as an obedient son, as the sacrificial lamb. He wants to ascribe glory to the name of God the Father. Now here again, we can make a really simple point of application. Here's a really simple challenge for all of us here this morning. You know, we see this unwavering dedication of Christ to accomplish the purpose for which he was sent. My question to you is, brothers and sisters, Christian, are you committed to your own purpose? Are you committed to the purpose God has given you? Or are you turning aside? Are you getting entangled in other affairs? Are you being distracted? And are you neglecting what God has clearly called you to do, saved you, and purposed you for? And I don't know all of you personally, so I don't know what that, exactly what that looks like. But what I can say is if you're a father in here, you have a specific purpose God's called you to. Same to the mothers. Same to children, husbands, wives, men, women, period. Whatever uh, phase of life you find yourself in, if you are created in God's image, the Lord has given you a distinct and specific purpose. And maybe you're in here this morning, you're like, well, I don't really know what that is. I'm still wrestling through that. What is my purpose here? Well, I think the Bible clearly tells us what our purpose is, the reason that God has given us life. And it's the glory of God. Again, that's a really simple answer, but that's it. See, God has made us all for his glory. That's the reason, reason that creation exists. 
You see, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, I think Paul is helpful here. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 and 24 says this, let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. These are the words of Jesus. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's your purpose, brothers and sisters, this morning. That's the reason that we're here. That's why we inhabit this earth. It's to give glory to God, our creator. So again, my question to you this morning is, are you committed to that purpose? Is that the steam that drives your engine? Is that what compels you daily in every area of your life to give glory to our great and mighty God? See, Jesus says here, he says, Father, glorify your name. And see, then a voice responds and says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. See, the voice of the Father shows the approval of Christ the Son. See, God was totally pleased in his Son. And he had already glorified his own name through the life of Jesus Christ. Now he's going to glorify his name again through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. He would again be glorified. See, the text tells us this voice comes and the people standing around, they're, they're all confused. Some are like, man, it just thundered. Others are like, no, it was an angel that spoke to him. And Jesus says, that voice has come for your sake, not for mine. See, Jesus didn't need to hear the audible voice of God. Jesus knew who he was. He knows his position in the Godhead. He knows he's the son of God the Father. He knows his divine origin. So that voice had come really hopefully to solidify or bring faith to those who could hear the voice of God. It was hopefully to strengthen their faith. But at any rate, it says that those who stood around, they were confused. They didn't know what was going on. But at any rate, we see this firm commitment of Jesus Christ. That's point number three. Now let's move to point number four quickly. Point number four is this, for the victory of Jesus Christ. That's what we see. Point number four is the victory of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at verses 31 and 32. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. See, as Jesus looks forward to the triumph of the cross, here he proclaims a time of judgment and victory. You see, he first announces judgment over the world. Now it's important for us to understand what the world means right there. We have to have an appropriate understanding of the term world. And so I think Pastor John MacArthur is helpful here. He offers us a definition, and he says this, quote, the world is the evil satanic system and all who are in it, who are in rebellion against God, end quote. So Jesus pronounces judgment against this system, against the world. See, we, we've seen that phrase used by the Apostle John before um, in the Gospel of John. We also see it in his, his letters to the church, 1 John 3, 13. I'll give you just a couple references. I'm not going to read them all. I'll just give them to you. You can reference them in your own time. 1 John 3, 13. 1 John 4, 4. John 7, 7, 
those are helpful references for us to get an understanding of what it has meant when it uses the word world. So Jesus first here, he's got three things I want to look at. Jesus first here proclaims victory over the world. You see, at the cross, it appeared that the world had triumphed over Jesus. In fact, they had passed judgment on Christ, deeming him to be a guilty man who was guilty of blasphemy. And so they murder the son of God. They pronounce a verdict against him. But really, in doing this, they brought judgment on themselves. The world has brought judgment upon itself. You see, the rejection of Christ would only bring judgment on this unbelieving world. And why? Because when you reject Christ, you've rejected God. That's an important point to remember. I think, or I hope, that's not something that's lost on any of us this morning. That's why we look to these other religious systems and they say, hey, we're pursuing God. We love God. And the Bible clearly tells us in order to pursue God, we must go through his son, Jesus. So the rejection of the son is rejecting the father. So Jesus is now is the judgment of this world. Now, again, it's important to be clear. In the last days, there will be a final judgment. But to a certain extent, the judgment of the world has already begun at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. <coughs> See, not only does Christ pronounce judgment against the world, but secondly, he pronounced judgment against the ruler of this world. Now, who's the ruler of this world? Satan. And you say, well, where do you find that? At? How, how can you say that? Well, first of all, you don't have to look very far. Just turn on the news and you can see that. You can see Satan is clearly at work. But if we go to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2, it tells us this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That reminds us that Satan is the one that rules here 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Again, that is the power and influence that Satan has. Now, I want to be clear. Yes, Satan is at work. Yes, Satan has a level of authority, but it's only the authority that God gives to him. Right? We know who's the ultimate authority. We know who's the sovereign ruler and king. So anything that Satan is able to do is what, because God allows it. What's the old saying? I think uh, even the devil is, the God, is God's devil, right? Satan can only operate under the authority that God gives him. For more on that, just see the book of Job, right? Nevertheless, Jesus says that the ruler of this world will be cast out. Friends, that is reason for us to rejoice this morning. You see, the cross signifies the defeat of Satan. See, Jesus' moment of glorification and exaltation is a glorious moment where Jesus is enthroned and Satan is dethroned. And we still see the sway of the evil one, but praise God, he has no authority over you and me because we are in Christ Jesus and we are totally free. Amen? Are you excited about that? Praise God for Jesus. And through the cross, Jesus has overcome the world, defeating sin and death and Satan, and Jesus stands victorious. And we stand victorious in him. See, verse 32 tells us that not only has he achieved victory over the world and Satan, but that through his crucifixion, Jesus also gathers together people for himself. So if you look at the text, it says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, that's important to get that right. 
So when he says all people, what does that mean? Does that mean everybody will be saved? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Well, I certainly don't believe the Bible teaches a universalism. And I don't believe that Jesus is teaching or preaching universalism here either. So what is Jesus actually saying when he says, I'll draw all people to myself? See, this is where context is important. If you remember why this whole conversation started, a group of Gentiles has come to Jesus. Right? And so what Jesus wants them to understand is when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself without distinction, not without exception. Right? So there is no ethnic or, or racial uh, distinction, all people. So if you go to the book of Revelation, it tells us that Jesus gathers together people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. See, that's what Jesus is pointing to here. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter where you're from. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, if you look to me in faith, I'm going to draw all men. That's men from every nation on earth. See, that again speaks to the wonderful victory of Christ Jesus. Listen, I'm not a Jew. Is anybody in here Jewish? If not, that's good news for you this morning, that you're among the people of God, that he's drawn all men unto himself. See, a lot of people like to avoid the book of Revelation because it can be difficult to interpret, and I get that. One of the beautiful things that you miss is the glorious triumph of the church that is guaranteed in Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to read that for yourself. We're reminded of our position in Jesus. He reminds them here, he tells them the kind of death he's going to die, that he will be crucified, but man, he's going to draw all people unto himself. He's going to gather together sons and daughters of the king. See, then the people here, they respond and they say, man, how can you say that the Christ must be lifted up? Scriptures tell us that the Christ will remain forever. Now, it's not clear what text they're referencing. And I did a little bit of study on this. You know, some commentators say it's Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, which promised that the Messiah's kingdom would last forever. Right? Or it may be Ezekiel 37, where God promised that the final David would be Israel's prince forever. So they have this idea that the king or this long-awaited Messiah will be forever. And so Jesus says, I must be lifted up. And they're like, we don't understand that. Who is this son of man? We don't understand what you're saying. But see here, Jesus doesn't even engage the question. He doesn't debate with them or try to argue his point here. Instead, he chooses to plead with them one more time. And that's our final point for the day. Point number five, this final plea. We see that in verses 35 and 36, and this is where we'll end our time this morning. It says this, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. See, Jesus' hour has now finally arrived. He spent three hours ministering to the masses, or I should say three years, ministering to the masses. He's preaching the kingdom, demonstrating to the nation that he is indeed this long-awaited Messiah, only to be rejected continuously. See, as we arrive at the close of this particular section of Scripture, before Jesus begins this march to Calvary, he invites this group of people to believe in him one more time. 
And what you have to understand what's significant about this is this is Jesus' final moment of his public ministry. He will never again be before these people. From the rest of the Gospel of John, what we'll read is Jesus' time with his disciples. And then, of course, his crucifixion and resurrection. And so Jesus knows this. And so it's his final moments with these people. And one more time, he pleads with them to believe in the light while you still have it. See, Jesus reminds them, I'm only going to be with you a little bit longer. He says, walk in the light while you have it or the darkness will overtake you. Friends, this is a call to repent. This is an invitation to look to Christ in faith. Jesus is giving them an opportunity to be saved. He says, if you believe in the light, and that's him. He says, if you believe in the light, you'll become sons of the light. Listen, it's simple to deduce what Jesus is saying here. If you do not believe in him, you're not a son of light. You're rather what Ephesians 2 calls a child of wrath. You see, that's the designation for every person who is outside of Christ Jesus. They're children of wrath. If you're not in Christ, you're not a son of light. You're not a daughter of light. You're under the righteous wrath of God. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, this has always been the crux of the issue. This is what Jesus has always been so persistent about. This is the central theme of John's gospel. It's always been about belief, specifically belief in Jesus Christ as the Savior. See, John chapter 1, he lays it out for us clearly. He says to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gives them the right to become children of God. See, here Jesus extends that invitation one more time to this group of people. He gives them the opportunity to respond, to walk in the light while they still have it. You know, as we prepare to close our time this morning, I'd be a fool not to take the opportunity that we have right now to extend the same invitation to plead with you one more time. If you're in this room this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, you're in darkness. You're walking in darkness and the text tells us those who walk in darkness have no idea where they're going. But I can tell you the ultimate end of those that are outside of Christ is eternal destruction. But that doesn't have to be the end of your story. That doesn't have to be your fate, your destiny. Because God in his love and his mercy, he sends his son a light into the world and gives you an opportunity to be free. If you haven't looked to Christ in faith, now is the day of your salvation. You can do that right now. You have an opportunity right where you're sitting to be saved. Walk in the light while you have the opportunity. I don't know when you may sit under the preaching of the gospel again. I don't know. You'll never get this moment again on this day, at this time, with this group of people. Respond while you have time. You know, as we prepare to close, I want to just end with a couple of challenges as well for everyone in this room. 
not just the unbeliever, but to believers as well. Listen, first to every believer, I want to remind you again, do you have this desire to see Jesus? Are you seeking and pursuing him in every area of your life? And if you are, I'd again encourage you to ask yourself, why? Why are you pursuing Christ? What do you want from him? What do you believe about him? For those who are prepared to follow Jesus, or at least considering it, do you understand the necessity of your own death? Do you understand what Jesus means when he says you must hate your life and that you must lose it in order to find it? Do you understand that kind of commitment? That you must follow the example that Jesus set as the crucified king, that we must also lay down our lives. Brothers and sisters, do you understand the commitment and the purpose that God's called you to? And have you committed yourself to that? To his glory? To exalting his name? And then once again, to anyone in here who isn't walking in the light, who isn't secure in Christ, you have an opportunity now to respond. To believe in Jesus Christ. And so here we're not, we're not going to do an altar call. I'm not going to make anybody get up or raise your hand or come forward. But if you're here this morning, the Holy Spirit is stirring your affections for Christ. It's working in here. Maybe you've never heard the gospel preached before. Maybe it's never been real to you till this moment. Please find me, Pastor Gabe, any of our members. Do not leave this place the same way you came in. Respond while you have the opportunity. Today is the day of your salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. God, we thank you for the challenge that even comes from your word. And Father, even for me personally, things that I had to wrestle with this week, God, I pray that what we discussed this morning isn't lost on anybody that's in here. God, I pray first for the believers, for the brothers and sisters in this room that they would be challenged to examine themselves, to look at their own lives and why they're pursuing you. And to see if they are truly committed to what you've called them to, not being turned aside and not pursuing the things of the world, but understanding that your glory is primary and that we must die. We must give our lives for you. Would we be committed to that end? And Father, I pray for those in here this morning that don't know Jesus Christ. Lord, I'd be foolish to believe that everyone in here has been born again. So to those that are under the sound of my voice right now, Father, I pray that you would do what only you can, and that's give them a new heart, a believing heart, and that they would respond to Jesus Christ in all of his glory by devoting themselves to him. Father, would you be glorified in each of us today? Would you be pleased with the rest of the time we have gathered together, and would you be honored as we go about our days, go about our week as we leave this place. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were-